Welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast, presented to you from Cape Town here in the Western Cape, South Africa. The podcast is presented with a view to providing a platform and voice for built environment professionals and interest groups who are working towards transforming the places and spaces here in South Africa. It's dedicated to the individuals and community groups who are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. Welcome to this episode of the Talking Transformation podcast and our interview with Andrew Berain, the Chief Executive of the Western Cape Economic Development Partnership. Although for the purposes of this podcast, I've nicknamed him Mr. Cape Town, that's really only half the truth. Andrew's a globally respected thought leader and expert in urban and economic development, and his influence extends well beyond Cape Town and the Western Cape. His CV catalogues a career that includes a student leader, an activist, advisor, negotiator, government planner, city manager, chief executive, facilitator, partnership specialist, designer and communicator. He's also a prolific writer and a photographer. And in fact, photography is one of the few topics we didn't cover, but pretty much everything else does get a look in. He reflects on the inspirations and the mentors who shaped his formative years via student politics before he transitioned into civic organizations and fledgling political movements. We talk about the time he spent in the first Mandela-led national government, who he learned from and what it was he learned during that period of transition. He reflects on crafting the content and the chapter of the constitution that resolved some of the powers and competencies of local government during that transitional period and how that assisted him in his role as city manager in arguably the defining transformative era of local government. I ask Andrew to retrace steps on his journey and in so doing, consider the state of play of leadership in contemporary government. He has sharp and cutting observations, as well as some sage words for those holding the reins in 2021. We also learn about what's keeping him inspired, getting him up in the morning, and driving his learning and ambition more than 45 years into his journey. Sincere thanks and appreciation to Andrew for his time and reflections. I thoroughly enjoyed recording this interview with him. Hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did recording it. Enjoy the episode. So it's just gone six o'clock on April the 28th, and I'm absolutely delighted to have Andrew Bahrain across the city in Cape Town. Andrew, what an absolute privilege to have you with us this evening. How are you keeping? I'm good, thank you, and, and really thanks very much for having me on your show. It's a great privilege to be here, and it's I'm looking forward to thinking and looking back in order to carry on looking forward. I've got a long story to tell, and certainly I'm looking forward to hearing some reflections from you, Andrew, on terms of a career which has really been around a sort of lifetime of service and leadership, contributing within government spaces, within communities. You've worked within the Plan Acts, the NGO world. You've worked within national government at the absolute apex, director general in that space, city manager of Cape Town, and so it goes. You've you've started up things like the South African Cities Network and the Cape Town Partnership. And at the moment, I think with the Western Cape Economic Development Partnership, you have literally rewritten some of the landscape here when we think about built environment and urban governance, certainly in the Western Cape over the last 20 years. Now, what are your personal highlights from this career to date? Peter, thanks for that. I mean, it goes, it does seem to go back a long way now. Um, <laughs> it's 41 years uh, since I was uh, elected the youngest ever new SETS president. It's the National Union of South African Students and had a whole career in student politics. And that that seems like ages and ages and ages ago. 
but I guess that's that's where it all started. I mean, formally, I you know I came from a I suppose it's quite a political family with my father being in the Methodist Church, the National Youth Leadership Training Program, uh, University Christian Movement with Steve Biko. Uh, and so as a young boy, I was exposed to um, a whole lot of stuff happening in society, not just in South Africa. For a while, we lived in the United States during the civil rights movement. And obviously, I was too young then to remember it. But my dad was very involved with Martin Luther King and uh, Andy Young and Bobby Kennedy and Jesse Jackson and all those characters out of our, our out of the U.S. history, and so a key turning point. I mean, I was very influenced by the June '76 uprising. I was in matric myself at that stage, but but it was the next year when Steve Biko was murdered in detention by the security police of the apartheid regime that it really hit home. Uh, how serious the situation uh, uh, is. I'd met Steve Biko as a young boy at our house. He was working with my dad uh, in, in, in the church movement. And so I suddenly thought, my God, that young, that young guy that I met is dead. You know, uh, what, a, what, a, what an outrage. And I remember taking time off. I was in the, I was doing, uh, I was in the Navy at the time. And I remember taking a week off and joining UCT students in wrecking Jimmy Kruger's uh, uh, public meeting in Maitland. And that kind of really started me on a journey of activism, of involvement in organizations and institutions, in movements uh, to this day. I'm, I'm proud to be a founding national executive member of the United Democratic Front in the 1980s. And in the, I, I guess in the transition process in the early 90s, I played a role, a very small role, but uh, in advising the local government transition process. So this is long before we had democratic local government. It's how we got from where we were, which was racially segregated local authorities under the apartheid government, to where we are now. And I guess part of my career has always been interested in transitions and how do you manage transitions and how do you get from where you are which is an undesirable situation to where you want to be um, because you know we can talk a lot about vision and we can talk a lot about strategy but actually managing the process of getting from where you are which is often in a position of stuckness to where you want to be i i'm i'm, I'm interested in how you bend transitions in a different direction not only improving the governance of a system, but changing the trajectory of that system. And that's not an easy matter because you, you really need to get a lot of people on board, including people who don't want to go there. And so I learned early on during the Cadessa transition, I mean, at that stage, for example, the National Party, who was the, the, the kind of key partner to the ANC in those negotiations, had lost the support of the white electorate by 1993. They had kind of abandoned ship and joined the Conservative Party. And they were very, the Conservative Party at that stage, which was far more militant than the then National Party, was in charge of many of the local authorities in the Platteland, in the old Transvaal area, for example. And I remember, uh, you know, there, there was a deadlock in the Cadesid, uh, um negotiations at that stage. A, who was going to control the military, B, who was going to control the security police through the transition, and thirdly, what was going to happen to white local authorities? 
and they were digging in their heels and there was a kind of rebellion threatening and i remember one of the negotiators in the ANC, namely Joe, Joe Slover, called us in and he said, chaps, because he spoke in quite an old-fashioned way, he said, chaps, how do we give these people a bus ticket home? Because we don't want to paint them in a corner, because we don't want them to link up with renegade elements in the South African Defence Force and come out fighting. We want a peaceful transition. And so we designed the local government transition process to get us from where we were, which was in a position of stuckness, to where we eventually landed up in 2001, which was the new local government transition system. So I'm quite proud of being involved in that, in that era. It was fascinating, it was very interesting being a small part in that process. Again, as, as, a, as a fledgling official working in provincial government from 1996. I remember that whole LGTA, that whole sort of local government transitional arrangements. And then obviously 2000 comes with a sort of big bang and the Municipal Structures Act, et cetera. And, you know, I mean, you were part of that here in Cape Town at that stage. You'd even moved on from a, from an, a role in the national space to here in Cape Town as a city manager. And as a city official now working in Cape Town, people still talk back to 2000 as being a, a, a massive transition. You've already talked about the transition and the difficulty in, in bringing people with you. In, in, in some people might not want to come and others will be ready for it and far more adaptable. I, I mean, that, that, that in itself, Andrew, must have been an absolutely enormous, not only um, uh, institutional shift, but would have required you as an individual to, to th not just think on your feet, but the goal, the ambition, the, the drive that was given to you with a con sort of constitutional framework to work with. But I mean, you're, you're thinking back up to that time? Yeah. Well, Peter, I mean, firstly, we, we go back to what we put in the local government chapter of the new constitution in 1996, which of course itself was negotiated. I mean, I remember distinctly the constitutional lawyers advising the process at the 11th hour running around and they came to us as the group writing the local government chapter where we had advanced then which was quite a unique position globally that we should talk about spheres of government rather than hierarchical tiers equal equal and yep. connected spheres of government and and that's the position for better or for worse that we still have today we talked about cooperative governance being written into mm. the, the constitution i remember uh, constitutional lawyers like george bezos and uh, fink hasem running into a room saying uh, you've made local government too strong give us some more powers and functions that we can give to provinces because otherwise the in Carter Freedom Party, which at that stage was in a sense in power in KwaZulu-Natal, and the National Party, was, which had taken the Western Cape, were threatening to undermine the ratification of the new constitution. And so, you know, sometimes things are negotiated on the basis of learned constitutional principles, and sometimes they, they, they negotiated on the back, back, backroom deals at the last minute. And this was one case, and in a sense, to some extent, the system that we inherit today and the tensions between national powers and functions, provincial powers and functions, and local government powers and functions, and within local government between districts and locals, goes back to that, that early framing in the constitution. And then it was a question of, well, writing the new local government white paper, which we started in 1996, 
to put flesh onto the bones of the constitution and then implementing the damn thing. And it's easier said than done. And, you know, I remember arriving in Cape Town as a, a wet behind the, the ears uh, a city manager pointed sort of towards the end of 1996. And I started in February 1997. You know, the, the, the sheer enormity of the task of taking what was then, I think, 44 segregated municipalities with all sorts of differing powers and functions and jurisdictions and history and traditions, and first uniting it into six locals and one metro. So we had a two-tier system through the interim, which to my mind didn't work very well because of the kind of competition between the locals and the, the metro. And then turning that into a single metro by 2001, very complicated process, a lot of politics. I was appointed in 1996. At that stage, there was still a, a government of local unity. So it was the ANC, the then National Party and the then Democratic Party working together. They appointed me as a sort of united whole. Halfway through that, my term of office, that all fall, fell, fell apart because of government of national unity fell apart around a whole lot of uh, conflicts between the then National Party and the ANC. And so that, that kind of destroyed the bipartisanship which had been driving the process at local level. I think also, in a sense, the, the new and very progressive labor legislation had an unfortunate consequences of protecting the privileges of the a lot of the existing officials in the old white, white local authorities who were unionized up to senior management and fought tooth and nail to keep every single one of those privileges and seemed to expect that you could change the system without, in a sense, affecting 30 years of privilege that they had accumulated in the system. So there were some, you know, some really tough things, uh, you know, dealing with councillors, many of them new to the system, ratepayers up in arms, you know, saying, well, why, why are you no longer cutting grass verges in Constantia through to very impatient township residents saying, well, when are we going to Get, get the same facilities and amenities as, uh, as the white areas have enjoyed. So transitions, again, are not for sissies. It was a hard job. <laughs> and I think I lost a lot of hair at the time. <laughs> well, uh, certainly, certainly no, uh, no surprise there, Andrew. I mean, it, it really is fascinating to hear you talk almost a lexicon of the time when you, small, small things. And I'm thinking about, you know, brand South Africa, as it was in the man, that Mandela period post ninety four, you say it's fears as opposed to tears, and that in itself bring, bring, brings a particular mindset of inequality within the, the, the space. The idea of uh, unity, a government of national unity, uh, co co cooperation, uh, cooperative nature, and, and I mean that, that to me was that, that some of the traits of that I say fledgling democracy of. So, Certainly not language of compromise, but it's a language of, of almost nation building, of of city building, and ultimately with that comes, the, as you say, the hard yards of the administrative and the governance systems. But the language is so useful to re re revisit because at the moment, I think sometimes when we think about, you know, let's talk about you know unity, we, we seem to be as divided as we've ever been post ninety four. We the tensions are there. The idea of you know ongoing contestations in court around you know the the primacy of one sphere over the other and so it goes and we've seen it even in the recent months with covid certain national departments wielding 
what I would argue is you know unreasonable, but it, it's a, it's a great reminder of of where we came from, and perhaps sometimes a reminder of where we need to reframe our thinking in 2021. I do think I come from a generation that valued purpose and commitment and solidarity and sacrifice. I mean, that's that's how we worked initially, kind of outside and against the state because it was an illegitimate state and we had to end that illegitimate state. And then building the state was in and more recently playing a role in a sense between the state and uh, non-state actors uh, in society. So I've kind of been at different positions in my own career, but I've, you know, the, the overwhelming train wreck of the last 10 years has been state capture and corruption without a doubt. But I think closely followed by following that has been the the, the the unfortunate consequences of focusing on regulatory compliance and worshiping at the altar of regulatory compliance where so it's more important nowadays to get the process right than it is to serve communities and I think officials are more scared of uh, uh, getting an audit finding, or contributing to an audit that is not clean for their municipality or for their government department than it is to uh, then worrying about uh, residents toy-toying towards them uh, over a service delivery protest. Uh, I distinctly remember working with some of my colleagues in, in government and heads of department uh, a few years ago. It was a Monday morning, and over the weekend there had been a lot of protests and in some areas were, were I remember Frechurnt, there was tires being burnt and that there was uh, a lot of conflict in many uh, parts of Cape Town. And before we started our workshop, I said to a lot of my colleagues, gosh, it's, it's quite a tough week we're facing. And they said, tell me about it. The Auditor General's in town. And they weren't interested in what was happening in communities. They were petrified of not being able to match up to the demands of SCOPA or, or the Auditor General uh, you know, uh, findings and things like that. And for me, that has poisoned this whole notion of being a developmental and capable state, because it means that for most part, and I don't want to over, I mean, there are still uh, incredible politicians and incredible officials, very dedicated. But on the whole, the system has become accountable inwards and upwards to political parties and to audit queries rather than downwards and outwards to communities. My, my own thinking, particularly over these last three to five years, where in Cape Town, let's just take Cape Town as an example, where we've seen the drought hit in such a profound way and the, the, the governance implications, the, the wholesale uh, the disaster relief that we were looking at, that that's, the pandemic that's hit, we've seen load shedding, we've seen the collapse of rail within the Western Cape and Cape Town very, very badly hit by that. We've seen the fires as recently as last week. It's almost like, how do you put on armour <laughs> in the week to, to be a leader, whichever whichever leadership role you're playing, whether it's at the top of the, the tree or whether it's at the at, at ground level? Thomas, how do you arm yourself on a daily basis to, to take on the, those challenges? And as you, what you're describing now is, oh, and by the way, <laughs> there's there's this almost malicious compliance element, which almost cloud, not just clouds the thinking, but diverts diverts the resource, the ability to be clear in one's thought, 
in an approach. And I mean, I, I think I think it's very, very important what you're reminding us. I've always struggled with this Cape Town thing, and I speak it as a as as someone who's worked and lived in Cape Town for for, for most of my career. We confuse promoting the city to the rest of the world for trade and investment and tourism and hospitality and all those good things that we need to build our economy with actually addressing the underlying challenges of our system and our society. Cape Town is not a great city. And it's it's hard to say that, but if we don't start saying that, you know, for majority of, of our residents, it's it's hell on earth. It's 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 how do you survive to the next day? If you look at food and the slow violence of hunger, the the twenty seven percent stunting rate of kids under five, the fact that Cape Town is in the top ten most violent cities on the planet, the rail system has virtually collapsed, and I can't see any sign of it coming back. You know, in a long time, the the drought ravaged us, the fires ravaged us. It's a rough city. It's a rough neighborhood. And that has to be our starting point, not to say woe is us or we can't do anything about it, but to kick us in the backsides collectively and say we've got to do better, you know, because otherwise we just cover it up and saying, look how beautiful Cape Town is. And I'm not interested in a natural beauty if the people are not part of that. And most people are not. Most of our citizens, it's a day-to-day -day struggle to survive. And so I think we've got to re-inject some honesty back into the conversations that we're having. And I kind of listened to some of the debates in, in government. And again, it's not just at the city of Cape Town. It's in provincial governments, in national government. It's a million light years away from the realities on the ground. And when the realities are addressed, it's often very ideological and trying to catch people out and, and divided. And what we need is multi-party, cross-the-aisle consensus that we are in the shit. We are in crisis as a city, as a region, as a country, quite frankly, as a, as, a, as a planet, what COVID has done is really just expose this a little bit more than normal. COVID didn't cause it, but it has exposed the flaws in our system, and it's exposed the flaws in the governance of our system brutally, and uh, we need a reboot. If we think to the ongoing discussions and testimonials that we're seeing at the Zondo Commission, what, what do you think could be, could be done to, A, prevent another decade? And second of all, I think one of the challenges has been this sort of safe space for the whistleblower, for the, somebody who does put his or her hand up and say, I think this is wrong. And I don't believe that we've seen enough protection of the integrity and the security of those who put up their hands. We've heard testimonials at the Zondo Commission of people who have been brave enough to take on this uh, institutional uh, systemic abuse and have, and, have, and have suffered for it. And um, I think this is one of the things that, you know, when we talk about leadership, and I say it can be leadership as the secretary, it can be leadership as the city manager, it can be leadership as the mayor. Ultimately, it comes down to how do you deal with that? And again, I'd be interested to get your sense of, you know, what more can be done? What needs to change in the system that protects people from the system and allows for the debate to take place in a in a coherent and uh, reasonable way. Sure. Well, it's a it's a difficult question because we're at the kind of nadir of our democracy, and I think that we we suffer hugely from what I call weasel politics, where where political leaders 
not just confined to one political party, are prepared to abandon accountability and they're prepared to believe lies and cover-ups, you know, to suit their narrative. And obviously this is hugely, and this is this is a global phenomenon. It's not just a South African one. One can think of what's happened in the United States or the, the UK as much as one thinks of what's happened in Brazil and South Africa and India. It's the same tendency, and it's exacerbated by the vicious polarization occurred driven by social media, you know, where, where in a sense only those who are prepared to go out and, and savage others get a hearing. Building the middle ground, building consensus, building an ability to listen empathetically and deeply has all but vanished from, from politics. And it has been re re replaced by a, a nastiness not seen in, in, in decades. So I think movements, I, I, I don't think, personally, I don't think change is going to come from within the state. And I don't think it's going to come from within the party political system that we have in South Africa. But I do think we've seen huge efforts to defend our democracy at huge cost to, to people and individuals within the judiciary. We've seen incredible bravery from investigative journalists and the people who funded them. We've seen bravery. And from social movements and NGO, we've seen bravery and the, the rebirth of the at civil society organizations. So we are not without hope. We've got incredible people in this country who are linking up to defend our democracy, and it is worth defending. And I think that as the, the more we can support that, value that, give space to that, we, we will be able to turn the corner in future. I mean, one of the things that you established was this uh, South African Cities Network. After your experience, I think it was, uh, with the city of Cape Town as the city manager, you went and established the, the SACN. And we've had podcasts with the good people of SACN. And I'd like to understand what led to the establishment of it in terms of trying to set an agenda for particularly, I think, the metropolitan areas of, of the country. And, you know, how is it going to be different from what was your experience and the different uh, approach from your national and your municipal experience to that point? My counterpart in Joburg for most of the time when I was city manager of Cape Town was a good close friend of mine, um, Ketso Gordon. And when I thought back to our term of office, I thought we'd met a couple of times as city managers and despite being good mates and committed to very similar ideals, it had been a kind of competitive edge in the room. Joburg versus Cape Town or Joburg versus Durban or Durban versus Cape Town, whatever it was at the time. And um, I thought, you know, resources, as, as South African cities, resources are few and far between. And, you know, it's actually wrong where people will go on an overseas mission to drum up support for their city and do it at the expense of other cities. Literally say, well, you know, come to Joburg, <laughs> don't go to Pretoria, or come to Durban, <laughs> don't go to East London. And that's just plain wrong. And that's what was happening at the time. And so we, I got huge support from the, the, the then minister of the, what was the Department of Provincial and Local Government, the EPLG later became Cogta. And I went to Minister Sidney Mufamadi and I pitched this idea. I said, why don't we focus on cities, firstly, the 
engine rooms of growth of our economy. And why don't we find a way in which cities can cooperate better to share the resources, share the learnings, share the knowledge? How can cities be competitive, but not in competition with each other? In other words, put your best foot forward, but don't put it on the neck of someone else and run them down to, to advance your own city. And initially he said to me, <laughs> I remember we had breakfast in Cape Town. He said, listen, I'm a rural fellow from Limpopo. Why should I even worry about cities? It, you know, we've got to look at the agrarian revolution, the land question and rural development. Anyway, he, long story short, he, he created the space and I'm very grateful to him for that at the time for me to go around and canvas mayors of cities and uh, city managers, people that come after me and, and get them all to sign up on this concept of the South African Cities Network. And I'm very pleased that it's still going today. I think it's done incredible work over those years, particularly, I remember we developed a framework on a city development strategy, which tried to look at the trade-offs, uh, going way beyond just the kind of IDP formulas that, we, that we've been using. I do note with disappointment that the city of Cape Town ceased being a member, uh, and I wish they would rejoin the, the, the family of cities, because Cape Town has so much to offer, but also to learn. And uh, we, you know, none of us can, can solve these things on our own. That's the principle of cooperation and learning from each other. And I think that the, I'm very proud that the Cities Network is still going, and they're about to publish, I think, the fourth State of South African Cities report in a couple of months' time. And they look at the state of city finances, and they really put cities on the agenda. And, you know, that hasn't been an easy task, Peter, because... When you get an organization like Salga representing all local authorities, it tends to default to the lowest common denominator. It tends to champion the needs and role of the smaller and less resourced local authorities and municipalities. I've got nothing against that. But again, it can't be at the expense of cities because cities have got to drive not just growth in the economy. They've got to drive equality. Because the majority of poor people now in this country live in cities, and that's where the redistribution has to, has, to, has to take place. I guess with that goes the idea of mentorship and mentoring in government seems, and not just not government, just government, but organizations more generally in corporate space and in, in industry, et cetera. Thinking back to you know, your formative years and you've described some of your, your student experience and your, you know, the early days, who were your mentors? Who, who, who really helped set you on this path and how have you sought to expand that obviously you've talked about the surfing cities network but for people who are out there right now who are in those positions of uh, senior positions how what would your message be to them in terms of getting involved and getting involved in the learnership and mentoring approach to to governance so i think it's i, I wish i had more mentors my father was my first mentor very strong influence on my life and my choices and my early involvement. I think back to when I was a young student leader, someone like Jabu Nguyenia, who had been a, a student leader in 1976, was very influential in helping me as a very young and very inexperienced new SAS president thrown at the deep end. I remember the late Wantu Zinzili, who was then president of COSAS, was, was an incredible mentor, learning from him what was happening on the ground in black schools, in townships and things like that. So 
I was very lucky to have very incredible people that I could link up with. But mentorship also comes from surprising quarters. And, you know, as a young and very inexperienced civil servant in the new government in 1995, thrown in at the deep end as a, a, a deputy director general, by the way, not as a DG. <laughs> my, 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 my apologies general, for giving you one more rank, no, no, Andrew. <laughs> well, my, my director general was uh, Neil Barnard at the time, uh, the former head of state of, of the na national intelligence system. So that was an interesting relationship that we developed. But I remember one of the former DGs of the old order, the former DG of Justice, a fellow called Fani van der Merwe, an incredible mentor. You know, you can, as I said, you can be mentored by surprising sources. And he had been in on the ground in the first, because he was DG of the Department of Justice, back in, this is back in the apartheid era, which also included prisons. So his minister was Kobi Kutsia, and between them, they opened up the dialogue with Nelson Mandela way before anyone knew. I mean, it was at the height of a civil war and people's power and uh, the state of emergency in 1986. And finally, it come through that process and see how, how people change and how, how you can win people over to a new direction. And he was an incredible influence on me in how you go about being a good civil servant, uh, despite the fact that he'd come from the old order. So, you know, I appreciated that mentorship. But Peter, maybe I could make a more general point about how building in learning, not just as individuals and individual mentors, although I do think it's very helpful when you're in a tough position. And I, I, if I think back to who could I turn to when I was in that lonely position of being city manager through a transition period, not many people. And I regret that now. You know, I, I, I wish I could rerun that and have more people to advise and, and guide and, and hold because one has to deal with the emotional trauma of being in senior positions which are very tough and you get buffeted by the winds of change. Let's, let's, fa let's face it, and I'm sure you know that being in a big institution in your career as well. But I do think going back to why we have to constantly learn, it's about a development philosophy. And it's different from the kind of linear planning and implementation and monitoring and evaluation that we tend to favor in the South African uh, public service at the moment and local government service, which kind of predicts that, you know, you can, you can match cause and effect and you can give an input and it will result in an output which can be measured and then you can measure an outcome and, you know, life's too complex. Most development challenges are so complicated because you don't know all the variables. There's too many moving parts. And so how do you deal with complexity like violence in our communities, like the collapse of our, our rail system or the central line for 10 years, like sudden shocks and stresses on the system, like droughts and fires and COVID and things like that. And that's where what I would call adaptive leadership comes in. And I don't know if you've, Nabil Hamdi, that, 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 that planner from the UK wrote a book. And in that book, he says, don't think too much before you start doing. And don't do too much before you pause and reflect and adjust your plan, adjust your strategy. And if you don't have the room to adjust based on what you've learned through your pausing and reflecting and thinking, 
you can have a bad plan within weeks. And as Eisenhower said, the, the, it's, it's about the planning, not the plan. Your plan is redundant on day one of the plan <laughs> once you've adopted it, unless you can change it. And so I, you know, the going back to, to that, that's why built into our planning and implementation process has to be deep learning. And the learning is not just about writing closeout reports, which we tend to do. It's about being able to change your plan because you're realizing, oh my God, I've got new intelligence in the system from my partners. I've tried something out, it's not working. I need to change the plan. And that's where we struggle in, in, in the public service because we lock ourselves into KPAs and annual performance plans and woe betide you shift from that. And if you have 11 meetings rather than 10 or nine meetings rather than 10, boom, you did in the water. And that's, that's not development. That's bureaucratic nightmares. And we're seeing more and more that type of approach being dumped by the very sort of corporate beasts that have, <laughs> have been trumpeting these things for decades. You know, it doesn't work. And it, it doesn't it, work. It, and it doesn't solve communities' problems. 100%. On, on, a, on a very positive and upbeat note, uh, uh, when we last met, uh, Andrew, you were telling me with great passion about your new venture and this new chapter that's opening up, which is, you seem quite surprised that the, 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 the nature of it, discussions that you're having. Tell us a bit about what's getting you up in the morning at the moment. Well, Peter, I've got lots of new ventures. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the one I guess I'm, I'm most passionate about is... Um, and I don't know even if this is one I talked about when we last chatted, but let me mention it now because I've always been, you know, seen myself as a as a as a city person, a city development person, you know, having been a city manager and South African Cities Network and things like that. And what COVID has taught me is perhaps how to shift from cityscapes to landscapes, and the 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 importance of the landscape and how we as humans could perhaps become a little bit decentered as the pinnacle of development and place ourselves in nature where we belong. And, you know, the relationship between people and cities and the natural environment, not just to be lumped under climate change and, you know, in, in the environmental affairs department, but as fundamental to, to, to our development as people. Um, so I, I, I've been kind of trying to think through that and I've been very interested in the relationship between the physical and the built environment and the natural environment. Because at the moment they, they, they posed against each other. They juxtaposed as opposites and usually one loses out against the other. The, and and I think we've got to completely re rethink our paradigm there. And I've I've kind of driven that personally by just, I suppose during COVID, one wants to get away from people because they, <laughs> that's where, that's where. Uh, we're not taking it. We're not from. taking it personally, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. But you know, if you take social distancing to its final conclusion, you've got to escape up into the mountains and into the forests and or into the sea and and go for long walks. And that's what I've been doing. And it's, uh, I found out that that Saint Augustine had a very wise saying. I think it was something along the Latin lines of solvator ambulando, which means it is solved by walking. And sometimes you, could, you don't think about these things 
just go for a walk. And I think he was saying more than just walking. He was saying, just go and do something. Get involved physically in something. And the ideas follow that. And I think Nietzsche, I've discovered, he also said that there's no good problem that wasn't solved by walking. So I've tried to become a walker. And I loved, you know, when I was in the Cape Town Partnership, I loved the urban walking and taking people around and talking about history and memory and culture and the built environment and public spaces and why they're so important for citizens to be able to walk and use public spaces, the space between the buildings rather than the buildings themselves. And I've expanded that. I think we've got to walk a lot more in nature and get away from the city as, as, or the town or the built environment. And how, how do we help everyone? who often people who have no recourse in from an informal settlement to get out and use that nature. And so that becomes just another one of our challenges that we set ourselves. The other, maybe what I was telling about from a work point of view is how I've become very excited about how we can change the food and nutrition system. We, I got into that a little bit by accident. I have no background in food and nutrition, still don't really, and neither did the Western Cape Economic Development Partnership. But the, the COVID crisis obviously saw a lot of people losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods. We had the, the closure of businesses through the lockdowns and people had to be fed. And so we also saw a collapse of the national feeding scheme when the National Department of Social Development closed their offices at the beginning of the crisis and closed their support for early childhood development center feeding schemes and school feeding schemes. And so by and large, civil society stepped into the gap and, and stepped up with a vengeance and did incredible work. And I'd say 60% of all feeding in those first six months was driven by civil society, not by government even though government has had a 20-year history of feeding people through national schemes. So what we did is we set up a forum, the Western Cape Food Forum, and under the banner of connect, uh, communicate, and collaborate. And we'd learned that from the lessons from the drought a few years previously. When people are faced with a crisis, they often retreat. They, they retreat into themselves or their family or their neighborhood at the expense of others. So the first motto was connect with someone else. And that's what also, uh, not just because of us, but the connecting Cape Town movement was so important. And the community action networks that connected across those barriers were such an important response to the, to the, um, uh, the pandemic. And then we said, communicate. Because again, in a crisis, people tend to reinforce their own prejudices within their spheres or within social media. So we said, connect, uh, communicate across those barriers and then collaborate. How, how do the larger professional NPOs whose food is their business collaborate better with the, the ecumenical networks and the homeless people shelters and the grassroots NGOs? who stopped what they were doing and went off and fed people through community kitchens and community action networks and things like that. And then how do we get uh, the intermediaries involved, people who are sourcing food with farmers and sourcing from international donors and you know, contributions and getting it to the grassroots. So again, civil society did incredibly work there from the big ones, the more established ones to the grassroots and the micro organizers and the food gardens that have 
grown up now on the Cape Town Together Food Growers Initiative and things like that. And then how do we connect that to government? Because government did start responding. The provincial government defied national government and kept the school feeding schemes going to their credit. And so the Western Cape governmental response was actually very positive at the time. City of Cape Town, a little bit of humming and hawing about whether it's a, a mandate to feed people did contribute through the Mayor's Relief Fund and through uh, the, the, the subsequent fund. So people did pitch in all round. And the role of the Western Cape uh, Food Forum was to coordinate the food relief response. But that's not sustainable. I mean, here we have a system where majority, of, I mean, we, we are food sufficient largely in this country, and yet we still have tremendous hunger, the slow violence of malnutrition, mal, mal, malnourished outcomes. People are not getting nutritious food. They are buying crap in the supermarkets. It's, it's the, 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 the incentives in the system are driving people to ill health. And that has long-term terrible outcomes for the health system, for the education system, for the productivity in the workplace, for care of old aged people and things like that. So the question that we've, we've asked ourselves, how do we shift from beyond food relief, short-term food relief to long-term food systems change with better uh, uh, nutrition outcomes? I don't have the answers, but collectively, by working together with the academics and researchers who've been doing really good work you know, for many, many years, with the public authorities, with civil society and with business, we can sit down in a safe space and figure out how do we change the food system in Cape Town, in the Western Cape and in South Africa. And I'm very excited about that. Well, it certainly sounds, Andrew, like we need to have another chat in a year or so's time or before then to hear where, 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 where you're going with it. Because, say, hearing you talk about it with such passion and enthusiasm is, is really encouraging and good luck with it. Um, where, where can people find out more about the work that you're doing with the EDP and so forth? Is there a website or you're you involved with Twitter and that type of thing? Where can people find out a bit more? We do have a website and there's some some useful stuff on that. We're trying to make it better. www wcedp.co.za. That's probably the best place to, to find out what we're doing at this time. And, you know, we're not just looking at food and nutrition. We're doing a lot of interesting work around how do we change, uh, improve the, the governance of the water system that supplies the city of Cape Town. How do we improve the way in which communities can respond to the crisis at an economic level. So uh, building the circular and neighborhood economies, uh, that's a very interesting area. And we're doing a lot of work around violence prevention, making places safer. And these things obviously all go together. So yeah, please look us up and, and come and work with us. Well, you certainly inspired me this evening, Andrew, and no doubt those who've, who've taken the time to listen to you in this episode. You know, you've reminded us about service, about compromise and collaboration, the importance of a culture of learning and adaptation. And I really want to thank you this evening for your time and for your effort and for, and for as I say, taking that journey back and, and thinking back to the good, the bad, and some of the indifferent, but also what, what, is, what is keeping you still sharp after all these years that you're still committed and you know, walking, walking your journey. And thank you for sharing that with us this evening. Really appreciate it. And all the very, very best to you, to the EDP team. And uh, let's, let's catch up again in, in the months to come and, and, and see how you're doing with that food project and the relief thinking. I'd really appreciate that. 
Oh, thanks for this opportunity, Peter. Could I leave you with three words? Because, you know, I've been thinking, you know, what, 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 at the end of the day, you strip all this stuff away. What does it matter? And, and, and for, for perhaps younger people embarking on a career, either within government or as an activist in civil society, or as someone involved in corporate social responsibility, wherever you find yourself, and there's many niches that you can make a contribution. What I've learned is, You've got to be quite tenacious. You've got to hold on. Literally, that's what the Latin word means. <laughs> Sometimes it's null scrap. Secondly, you've got to be adaptable. It's not a sign of weakness to be flexible. You've, you've, you've got to be able to roll with a lot of the punches. And thirdly, ability to listen deeply. You know, we, we grow up in a, in a very dialectic tradition of thinking of how we're going to critique or parry an answer with our own answers, you know, and, and we'll get to truth through thesis and antithesis and <laughs> some sort of synthesis. Well, it doesn't always work like that. Sometimes you've just got to shut up and listen as best you can. Listen with empathy and listen deep, deeply. And I'll just leave, leave those three little thoughts. Thanks very much for this, Peter. No, thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate it. And those three words, very, very inspiring. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks for being with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please engage with us and let us know your thoughts on this episode. You can do so via the Anchor podcast platform. There's a voice message function available via the app. You can also follow us on Twitter via Talking Transfo and the number one. So Talking Transfo one. Our theme music is kindly made available by Tribal Need. Find out about the music, the street art shows here in Cape Town and Europe via tribalneed.com.